what we're talking about this evening, about where that success really comes from. It doesn't necessarily come in the public places, but very much in the private places. And this clip that we're going to see is just two, three minutes long. It's from a film that came out maybe a year or two ago called The War Room. Um, It's a very good film if you have the chance to watch it. Um, And this is really the end sort of scene where the woman, Aunt Aunt Clara or Aunt Claire, I can't remember her name, but basically she she goes into her uh, war room to pray. She goes into her closet and you sort of see it's not one with clothes or anything like that there, but one that has got notice boards and we post-it notes and things, and she prays. Uh, um, and then the people that you see are people who have been involved in the film. So that, that's just kind of the context of what you're seeing, and it will just link in nicely to where we're going. Uh, thanks, guys.
the battle is in the private places. We're turning this evening from uh, Matthew 4 to Matthew 6. This evening, as we go from the busiest, most public room in the house, the kitchen, to the quietest, most private, the closet. This girl behind me is getting really popular at the moment on uh, Netflix and YouTube and different things like that there. Marie Kondo. Um, her theory is that if you go into your closet, uh, hug the item, and if it brings you joy, if it sparks joy, you can keep it. And if it doesn't, you can uh, declutter your life. Um, I'm scared. Ruth went to hug me the other day, and I thought, am I, am I going to be out in my ear here? Is this, is this the end? <laughs> is this the end? Spark joy. Now, I don't know about you. I don't have that kind of relationship with any of my clothes or, or anything like that. Um, if you see me and it looks like I'm hugging my clothes, I'm probably just smelling them to see if I can get another day's wear out of them. Uh, it's a, just a very different kind of relationship I have with my, my things. But tonight I want to talk about the closet, not because I want you to find joy in your clothes or anything like that, but I want, you, I want to pick up the metaphor that Jesus teaches in Matthew 6 about our private and our public lives. His point to the people that he was speaking to was, are you authentic? Is it real? Or are you just putting on a show? Is it just something that you do when other, other people are around? Or is it real? And he highlights three areas in, in this chapter, uh, or in, the, in this passage. Uh, your giving, your praying, and your fasting. And he asks, look, are you doing this because it looks the part? Are you doing this because it builds up a reputation of standing in society and the people that you're around? Or is, it, is there any real benefit to it? There's an old saying uh, that says, those who preach by the yard but practice by the inch should be dealt with by the foot. Um, and it seemed to be that Jesus really believed in that axiom because in chapter 6, he gives us some examples of what the scribes and the Pharisees are doing that the people could see. They gave, they prayed, they fasted. And they did it all for an audience. It was all to make themselves a big deal, to make themselves look good, and they pushed other people down in the process. These guys preached by the yard, but they practiced by the inch. So Jesus came in and gave them the foot. And so he goes through a couple of different areas where they were preaching by the yard, practicing by the inch. It wasn't real. It wasn't authentic. Uh, and Spurgeon... Um, there I go. Uh, ask the question, why is it some Christians, although they hear many sermons, make but slow advances in the divine life because they neglect their closets and do not thoughtfully meditate on God's word? From such folly deliver us, O Lord. Or to modernize it and to put it in the uh, Canada International Version, the type of Christian you are in private is the type of Christian you are full stop. The kind of Christian that you are whenever no one else sees, that's the kind of Christian you are. Full stop. See, the closet represents our private lives, the person we are while we are alone. It keeps coming up in metaphors. We will hear people talking about coming out of the closet because they are no longer hiding their preferences and who they like and who they love. This, the closet is the place where we keep all the skeletons in our family keep the skeletons in the closet. We keep them away hidden, away from people to see. The closet, no matter what kind of way you want to use the metaphor, 
It's all about our private lives, the lives that we hide away. Private life. I heard a story years ago that came from uh, whenever the gospel went first into an African region, uh, and the new converts were taught very early on that each morning they should have their devotions, that they should go out, uh, outside of the, uh, the, the, or the village and out in toward, towards the wooded areas, forge a path and find a place where you can meditate and spend time alone with God each day. And so over time, uh, as the people from the village headed out, uh, and we'd all scatter out from the village each morning, different parts of the surrounding jungle, the grass would would start to get worn out and, and trotted down. And these paths would start to become marked as each person went out each day to have their devotions. You could see their pathway was starting to be created, well-worn grooves as the soil um, in the soil. But it meant then that you could also tell whenever someone was slacking off from their devotions because the grass would start to grow back in that area. It would start to spread up again and get tall again and blend in with its surrounding area. So one of the elders of the new church in this village uh, would simply go to a brother or sister and say, brother, there's grass growing on your path. Sister, there's grass, grass growing on your path. And so let me ask you and just lay the, my, my stall very early this evening. Um, brother, sister, in church tonight, is there grass growing on your path? Matthew 6, verse 1. Beware. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus... When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by, uh, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, um, that the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, we'll move on to prayer in a second, but let's just start by looking at these verses. Be honest in your giving. The scribes and the Pharisees, they, pat, they like to pat themselves on the back. They like to look after each other because they did certain things, but it was all outward. It wasn't inward. It wasn't real. He uses the word to contrast that, which is genuine, and he uses the word uh, hypocrite, which is Greek. It means actor. It's a stage actor. The Greeks had actors in theater and in you know, pantomime or whatever. And uh, that's where the word comes from. It's where we get our word hypocrite. Um, you go to a theater, you observe somebody putting on a, a mask or putting on a costume and playing a role. They're not really that person. They're playing the bank robber or they're playing the hero or the superhero, whatever it happens to be, of the love interest. And they're a good actor. They are a hypocrites hypocrite, an actor. So when Jesus uses the term, um, that's what he's saying. He's saying you're an actor. Whenever we hear the word now, it's a wee bit more different. It's not a good term. It's quite negative. Nobody likes to be called a hypocrite. It's a cold, scolding kind of a term. But he uses this, that term three times in the verses that we'll be looking at tonight. Verses 2, verse 5, and verse 16. 
So let me sum it all up before uh, we, we get into it, and just in a nutshell. The Pharisees, the, these kind of high and mighty people, the church leaders, the people who set themselves up as the religious elite, the people who sort of say, okay, people, you should really be looking at how we do things. You should be trying to emulate me. Jesus turns to these people and says, how dare you say what you say when you're living the way you live? How dare you say what you say when you're living the way you live? If you say what you say, we need to see that in your life because here is a group of people who are saying a lot of things and they're elevating themselves up by the things that they say, but it's not real in their lives. They are a stage actor. They're a hypocrite. And verse 1 then says, beware. I, I find it really interesting that Jesus starts this off with a warning. Be careful. That's what beware means. Be careful. Why? Why should we be careful? Because whenever we do something good, there's a danger that our motivation in doing it can become corrupted. Sometimes you find yourself, you do something good, and you did it for the right reasons. You did it for the right people, But all of a sudden, you find that people start making a big deal about what you did. You find yourself being celebrated. You find yourself being uh, visible in, in the public arena, and that's dangerous because the flesh loves to be admired. We love a crowd. We love an audience. My ego gets stroked. People say, oh, you know, you're awesome. Well, you know, oh, go on. No, go on. Tell me. Tell. Now, there's nothing wrong with people encouraging you. But when you start to do things simply because the people are watching, when you're only doing it to be told that you're awesome, then it's a problem. So he starts with a warning, be careful. Now, the world that we're living in is particularly bad for us with social media. It's becoming something that we can all do. Social media is basically just the computer version of saying, hey, everyone, Look at me. Hey, everyone, look at me. Look at me, what I made for my dinner. Look at me and the people that I'm with today. Look at me and the things that I did today. Hey, everybody, look at me. Look at me. Look at me. And, and, and that's what social media is. And it's so dangerous then. Now, my point is that it's not wrong to do things. Or it's not wrong to help people out. The point is... Why is it so important for some people to let everyone else know what they're doing? Why is it so important that everyone else needs to know? Why is it so important that they need to see? That's the danger of works. That's why we're told, beware, be careful. He doesn't say don't do good works. He says just be careful when you're doing it and other people can see. Now the next phrase that we read, um, thus, therefore, because we're being careful about our motivations, we're being careful, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. Hypocrites want to let everybody know, hey, everybody, look at me, look at me, look what I'm about to do, look what I'm about to, look at me writing this check, you know, and, and uh, you know, my girls, sometimes they'll be on YouTube or they'll be watching things, and all they see is, oh, you know, I'm buying my mother a car, oh, look at me, I bought my mother a house, and I'm filming it for everyone to see. I'm doing it because I love her. Well, if you're doing it because you loved her, you wouldn't need everyone to see it on YouTube. It seems strange. What's, but what's so wrong with putting it on Facebook? What's so wrong about letting other people see 
that we gave money to a homeless guy or bought them some coffee or, you know, what's wrong with a wee picture of us in all our Christmas shoeboxes going out to Africa or Eastern Europe? What's wrong with letting people know that we're good people and God is to be praised after all? Well, verse 2 finishes by saying, I tell you, they've received their reward. Literally, it means you have received your full payment. So if you do stuff to be seen by men, if you're doing things so that you can get credit now and be praised by people now, the Bible says that God owes you nothing. You've received your payment. You've had your reward. Now, imagine how this conversation then is going to play out with you in heaven. Oh, God, this is awesome. I'm so glad to be here with you. Uh, this is amazing. I love my mansion. It's really nice. Uh, it's really, uh, all these questions I've had have been all played out. Really interesting. But just, just while I have you, uh, Lord, can I ask you, you know, I give quite a lot of money on this occasion down there on earth. And, you know, I, I help these people in this way over here. And there was this gift on this occasion. And I was doing this and I there doesn't really seem to be any accounting for that in my rewards chest up here in heaven. And then the Lord will turn around and say, right, well, it's interesting you say that because according to our books, it shows that you've already got your reward for that. People applauded you on earth when they read your name every week on the, blast, on the brass plaque that you insisted that the church put up for you on the back of your pew or the bench in the park or whatever it happened to be. And every time they walk by, they say, oh my, they're a great person. Oh, they're fantastic. You see? There's always a danger in doing anything public, including preaching, maybe, maybe especially preaching. So I'm very conscious that I'm maybe the most susceptible here to this. Because, hey, I'm front and center. Lights are on. Got a microphone on that makes me look like a pop star. Well, maybe not look like a pop star, but, you know, it takes more than a microphone to do that. And hey, he even puts his points on PowerPoint, so I mean, it has to be right. People will say, oh, wow, you know, that's so good. He's prepared so hard, he's done. Like, everybody loves encouragement, and, and that's fine, but there's a little part of me that sometimes that goes... That little reward, just, I lost that little reward there. I've lost a little bit, you know, in heaven. So in, in some way, I, I figure that it, some of you, and I know that some of you work so diligently and so faithfully behind the scenes, and you get so little credit for the amount of work that you do, whether it, it's, you know, in, in making sure the church is clean or making sure that um, different bits and pieces are all working the way that they should or, you know, the, the heating's on or the, tea is made or, or whatever it happens to be and nobody notices the amount of work that you do or you, you do the shopping for somebody or you get alongside someone nobody sees what's going on I expect to see you at the front row of heaven and if you want to find me I'll be way in the back somewhere because that the nature of what I do means that much of my reward will be here on earth. It's part of it. Because you get pat on the back 
people say, oh, yeah, that's good. I'll have my reward. I'm not saying that will be all my reward, but a lot of it will be here. And I think that's backed up then what Jesus goes on to say about prayer. In verse 5, he says, these guys who pray for everyone to hear already, they'll have their reward. They have their reward. They have their reward. Interesting, though, that Jesus highlights the fact that hypocrites, actors, they love a prayer. They love praying in public, that is. Not because they love God, but because they love themselves. They love the sound of their own voice, and they love the, the fact that everybody stops to listen to them when they pray because they're so articulate and, and they're so clever in what they say. Remember the, the story that Jesus said about two people going up to the temple to pray? This is um, Luke 18. And uh, there's the rich uh, man, and, and he stands in the middle, and he says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like all these other people. Lord, I thank you that I'm great and I'm clever, and I fast twice a week. I give alms of all that I possess. And then Jesus says, there's this other guy went up, tax collector. He's one of the guys that this first guy's pointing to and saying, Lord, I think you're not like him. Oh, I'm glad my life's so much better than his over there, spiritually. This tax collector stands far off. He's too ashamed of his, of his life, too ashamed of his spiritual being to kind of really edge himself anywhere that people might see. And he just simply beats his breast and says, Lord, be, mer be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, it's that man, number two, who's justified before God. Jesus here says, look, whenever you pray, Go into your room. Go into your closet. Go into a place where no one else can see. When you shut your door, that's when you pray to your Father. He is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret is going to reward you openly. The battle is fought in the private places, and the victory is seen in the public places. Jesus isn't saying that you shouldn't pray publicly. But public, public prayer is the outflowing of what happens in private. You're not praying in private, you're not going to be able to pray in public. It's going to be so foreign to you, it's going to be so hard for you. If you have a problem praying publicly, praying with people, praying in a prayer meeting or praying in the prayer room, could it be that really the problem is stemming from your private times of prayer? What's done in private makes its way out into the public sphere eventually. Jesus says this should be done in secret, so close the doors. It should be done in secret. Why do you need this quiet time that we call it? Why do you need this time alone from God when the door is closed? Because then there's no, no interruptions. The phone's turned off. The, the phone is left out away somewhere. The mobile's on, on the kitchen table, and you're somewhere else. You're on the other side of the house. It's not going to buzz or ding and get in the way. The dog's out of the room. It's just you and the Lord. And that's when you focus and you can concentrate on what the Lord is trying to say to you, what he's trying to do to you, what he's trying to do in you. And you set the time alone and you say, Lord, it's me. It's your word. Speak. And perhaps that's the reason why we become actors. Why we become hypocrites. 
because hand on heart, it's maybe just easier to recite a well-rehearsed discourse in public than have to go before God in private, honest and exposed for who we really are. And instead of simply confessing that we're not all that we should be, we find it's just a whole lot easier pretending. It's a whole lot easier to pretend in front of the people in the church because, hey, if we don't get that close to them, it'll not be so hard to fool them. And we pretend. And then we create barriers, we create walls. And we're not that close to people and we keep everyone at an arm's length. And then we say, ah, you know, I mean, I don't really fancy church. I've never really formed that close friendships with anyone. And then I'm thinking, well, makes perfect sense. But let's talk about the reasons why. Oh, no, no, I don't want to. We need to be generous, uh, be honest in our giving. We need to be thoughtful in our prayers. Verse 7 says, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. The Phillips translation of the Bible says, whenever you pray, don't rattle off long prayers. Now, please do not misunderstand me here, okay? And I feel like I need to keep counterbalancing things. I don't want people getting the wrong impression because Jesus is talking about the motivation behind things. He's not saying that giving is wrong or that praying is wrong, but he's saying the motivation with which you pray and you give and you fast, that's the issue. So, so nobody, all right, so saying short prayers is not any better than long prayers. And by the way, who decides what is a long prayer or what's a short prayer? You know, when does a short prayer become a long prayer? You know, is five minutes a short prayer or a long prayer? Maybe it just depends on how often you pray. For some people, five minutes is a very short prayer. For some, it could be the longest prayer you've ever prayed. So when does a short prayer become a long prayer? It's a random kind of, it's a very difficult thing to try and uh, quantify. The idea, though, is about vain repetitions. Rattling off long prayers because you believe that if you can stretch it out, even if your mind's a wee bit disengaged, even if you don't quite really make sense, as long as it's long, it's better. That was believed by many people now and 2,000 years ago. In the Talmud, there is a prayer that is recorded, and the, um, a rabbi who uh, prayed it uses 16 adjectives before he even gets to the name God. 16 adjectives. That's just how he starts off. Oh, holy, righteous, wonderful, beautiful, love, wise, and just. God. 16 adjectives. Jesus says, that's, that's the kind of stuff that needs to go. Don't worry about the length if it's real and from the heart. If it's short and real, that's good. If it's longer and real, that's just as good. The point is, it's from the heart. If you were to compare the praying of the prophet of Baal in 1 Kings 18 to the prayers of the prophet Elijah, there's a striking difference. Elijah prays very rarely, uh, a very few worded prayer. 
Uh, number one, he's praying, but number one, he's praying to the real God. That's always important. Number two, he's praying from his heart. His next on the line, he's praying authentically, genuinely from his heart to the true God. But the prophets of Baal are just talking vain repetitions. Uh, in First Kings 18, it says that they prayed from morning till noon. That's a long prayer. Okay, and then it says, well, how do you quantify it? I think morning to noon quantifies as a long prayer. They prayed, they cried out, they kept saying over and over again, O Baal, hear us, O Baal, listen to us, O Baal, uh, open and, and incline your ear to us. And it says, but there was no voice because they weren't praying to a real God. There's only one God in the world, period. And I always say, oh, Jeff, you can't really say that. You know, you have your God, I've got my God. No, there is only one God. Everyone else, everything else is fake. And these people, they credit to Baal for more, and they're so sincere. Because, hey, they have their religion, and they're sincere. Yeah, but, you know, they're, they're wrong. And they're, they're making vain repetitions from morning till noon. And it didn't work. And then Elijah, he starts mocking them. He says, maybe you need to pray a little bit louder. You know, if he's a God, he's got lots of things to do. Maybe he's busy. Maybe he's in the toilet. Shout louder. Maybe you've got to wake him up, and they're just taunting them. You've got to imagine the um, kind of uh, uh, gall that this prophet has. You know, there's loads of them, and he's going, oh, maybe he's on the toilet. So they start, these prophets of Baal, they start jumping up and down like monkeys, and they're leaping up and down from the altars. Just imagine the frenzy that they have worked up into. And I, you know, I've got like these, uh, this idea, like chimps in the zoo, you know, kind of, ooh, ooh, ooh. You know, and they kind of just run around. They're worked up, worked up. They start cutting themselves according to Scripture. That's how frenzied they are. That's how sincere their religion is. But the idea is, is that for those who don't really belong to the one true God, those who don't really have a relationship with Him, they have this belief that I have to persuade my small g gods by my strong language, by my repeated language, I have to show how sincere I am. I have to prove so that at some point they'll say, okay, stop, 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 stop. I give in, I give in. You'll, you can have what you want. That's the idea. That's how unbelievers believe their gods to be. They had to be persuaded and you had to change their mind. And then Elijah, he walks up there and, and he says, okay, Lord, you're God. I know it. They don't. Show yourself strong. My neck's on the line. Amen. And the fire fell. The message was clear from the true and living God. Point is, don't measure your prayer or measure your heart by the amount of words, but measure your words by the amount of heart. Therefore, don't be like the actors. Jesus says, be perfect for your Father in heaven is perfect. Be complete now. And he contrasts that with the hypocrites. Don't be like them or the religionist. Don't be fake trying to earn favor or seem to be more devout, trying to impress people around you. Don't be like them for your father. Now mark that, your father, he's saying. A lot of people talk about God, my God. What about my father? That's relational. It's not just about God and human coming together to talk. 
by having some sort of transaction, but it's more intimate than that. It's father and son. It's father and daughter. He knows the things that you need before you ask him. He knows, but it's about the relationship. It's about coming together. Um, now, you'll see this with, with some kids, okay? And in my head, I'm picturing sort of kids from eight years old to about 13, that kind of top end of primary school, the lower end of secondary school. You know that really annoying age, you know? There's no one here that age, so it's okay. Sorry, Jude. <laughs> and there's that kind of age, but what happens is whenever they've got maybe people around at the house, they'll maybe start trying to show off in front of the friends by talking uh, uh, disrespectfully to their mum or their dad. They'll start, you know, giving a wee bit of lip. They'll start talking uh, and giving a wee bit of that. And the point is that they're not really talking for the sake of talking to their father. They're not really talking to him because they genuinely want to talk to him. They're talking to him the way that they're talking to him because they want their friends to hear. They want to gain brownie points with their friends. They're wanting to show them that they are great and they're cool. So, oh, wow, look the way he can talk to them. Now, that's all well and good, but it disrespects their father. And I think that just might be how God feels whenever we start praying long-winded prayers, hoping that people think that we're very good at praying prayers when we're not all that interested in actually talking to God. Is there really much of a difference between those two scenarios? Maybe the only difference is in one scenario, you're the parent and you know exactly what you want to do to that kid if he talks back. The other is that we are the child being disrespectful to our Father in heaven. And then we maybe just find it a wee bit harder to see it from their side. We must never, ever, ever try to steal glory from God. Because that's what this is. God deserves all the praise and all the glory, yet we would come to Him in prayer and try to use His name to make ourselves look great, that we might get some glory, that we might look big in front of people, that we might be magnified. No, all the glory belongs to Him. So we would come to him in prayer to steal glory for ourselves. It's a very dangerous game. Let's finish. Be honest. Um, be <coughs> authentic in, in your giving. Be thoughtful in, in your prayers. But then let, let's delight in fasting. I've got just enough time to squeeze this in. Um, I'm going to skip over the disciples' prayer. I know it's often called the Lord's Prayer, but he gave us this prayer. It's a template for us. It's interesting, though, in the context of Matthew 6, you know, he's saying, don't use long-winded prayers. Don't vainly repeat babbling things on. And then he gives us this prayer, and what do we as a church do with it? We mindlessly repeat it. Oh, dear. <laughs> you know, it's just, you can imagine the frustration. You know, don't use vain repetitions. Here's this prayer. Okay, we'll just vainly repeat that now. Our Father who art in heaven. But when you drop down to verse 16, it says, when you fast. Now, you might want to circle that word when. But anyway, when you fast. Don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, like the actors. 
For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others truly. I say to you, they have received their reward. There's that phrase again. They've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You see, some people back then, they would paint their faces literally, um, maybe not as um, subtly as maybe what we can do now with modern makeup and things, but they would be like a white powder that they would dust over their faces. And so they would look a wee bit sicker. They would look a wee bit more gaunt than normal. And so people would go, he's fasting. Oh, he mustn't have eaten in ages. He's so spiritual. And that was the idea. They would would paint, uh, they would disfigure their faces. Jesus says, Stop putting on a show. Stop doing things for other people to notice you. You actors, you hypocrites. Now, you can tell who does Lent in church because they'll be the people who will go around telling you that they're doing Lent. Very quick to say, hey, I'm giving this up for Lent. I'm giving this up for Lent. Are you giving things up for Lent? No, I'm not just like last year and the year before. You always ask me. You know, they're very quick to, to tell, ask people and tell people. By the way, this kind of thing still happens in churches, okay? You know, maybe not painting their faces white, but people still have this thing where they dress up and it's all dark and it's all solemn and everybody's miserable and they call it holiness, but really it's morbid. But they want to give the impression that suffering is spiritual. Black robes, don't smile, act mean, because <laughs> sadness is next to godliness. No, it's just weird. All these things, those are man's rules. They're not God's rules. They're not God's rules. Shouldn't joy be what marks us out? The joy of the Lord is your strength. Blessed, oh, how happy are the poor in spirit. Those who mourn shall be comforted, etc., etc., etc. Now, fasting should be the norm. It should be something that happens deliberately withholding physical sustenance that I might enjoy spiritual delights. But can I just be clear? Nowhere in Scripture does it command us to fast. Okay, so you're not breaking any rules if you haven't fasted. It's not something that is commanded of us. It's not like um, fasting for uh, Muslims where they have to go the whole month of um, Ramadan in Islam, where, you, you know, where it's a requirement of every real Muslim. You can't say you're a Muslim if you don't fast or you don't keep Ramadan. The fasting doesn't have that kind of place in Christianity. There's only one day in the whole Old Testament where people fasted. Does anyone know what one it was? Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But actually, the Bible still doesn't even really say that you had to fast. What it says was you had to afflict your soul well, we don't really know what that means. And so it, be, it became tradition then that you fasted for 24 hours. That's really about the height of it. That was all that there was in New Testament. Yom Kippur, once a year. But by Jesus' time, the Pharisees had emerged and they fasted. How often? Before I told you, from Luke 18, remember the, the, the Pharisee going up into the temple to pray? I have prayed how often? Twice a week. Twice a week. 
by the way, those days were the second day of the week and the fifth day of the week. Why? Because they were the market days and the city was busier then. And so they fasted these times whenever the most amount of people would see them. Fasting is not just a diet that Christians can do. Oh, I'm going to give up chocolate for Lent. Hope to lose so many pounds. Oh, I'm going to give up fizzy drinks for Lent. It's not what it's about. It's about going to private places that other people can't see and making time for those places and saying to God, you are more nutritious than any physical meal and I will go without them in order to intensify my expression of need for something greater. And that's you. I'd rather go without a meal than go without you, God. I'd far rather go without that because I need you so much more. But rather than having a rule that we need to obey, it's an outward expression of real intimacy between God and his child. Nobody needs to see this moment. Nobody needs to be in on this, but it's just me and my Savior. It's just me and my Redeemer. It's just me and my God. And I'm coming, and I desperately need him more than anything. And I want him to know that. Because I know he satisfies and I know he meets the need. And, and it creates this beautiful, intimate moment that nobody else can see, where it's just you and God, and the two of you alone together, and you're saying with your whole body, the thing that I ache for the most is you. And no one else is allowed to share in that moment. And we'll use the renunciation of food from time to time to express that Jesus is better than food. That Jesus is more needful than food. Fasting is a way of saying with our body how much we need him and want him and desire him. Don't get me wrong. Food is good. Okay? Food is good. Let there be no mistake about that. We're not aesthetics, uh, ascetics in that we deny the goodness of God's creation. Food is good. It is a gift of God. We glorify God with it in two ways. We either um, feast on it with gratitude or we forfeit it out of hunger for God himself. When we feast, we gladly taste the emblem of our heavenly food, the bread of life, Jesus himself. And when we fast, we say, I love the reality more than the emblem. Feasting and fasting are both forms of worship for the Christian because both magnify Christ and, of course, both have their peculiar designs. Both of them are unique in their own way. But the danger of feasting is that we fall in love with the food. We fall in love with the gift. And the danger with fasting is that we belittle the gift and boast in our own willpower and boast in our own discipline and boast in our own selves. But at its best, Christian fasting is not a belittling of a good gift of food, but a heartfelt, body-felt exclamation point at the end of the sentence, Lord, I love you. It's away from everyone else. It's you and the Lord. Lord, I love you with everything I have. Jesus says, when you fast, when you take that time alone to say and express how much you love God. Christ 
Christian, do you desire to fast? Are you looking for intimacy with God? Then can I, t- can I suggest fast? Get in the Word of God and fast. Feed on the milk and the meat of the Word that we looked at this morning. And fast from physical food. Don't be content with being an actor. Don't be content with playing a part, giving award-winning performances every Sunday that fool everyone, that fool me, that fool the elders, that fool the deacons, that fool your spouse. It doesn't fool God. Let's get real. Let's get authentic. Let's get honest in our walk with God. It doesn't start in public. It starts in the closet. It starts in the private place. So let me go back to the question I asked at the start. Is there grass on your path? You'll know the answer. question is, are you going to do anything about it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father,